Welcome to Faith and Family. I'm your host, Andy Bates. Thanks for joining us today. We have a great conversation lined up ahead. Ever think about or wonder about uh, the, the approach you take to teaching your children, how you talk about religion and theology, how you talk about God and Jesus at home? We're going to talk about that today with uh, writer and uh, reading teacher, reading specialist, Ellison Kieslowski. Uh, We're going to talk about uh, nurturing children with theological language. Hope you can join us for that conversation. I want to say thanks to our underwriter, Concordia University, Wisconsin, for supporting this program. To find out more about Concordia University, Wisconsin, just go to our website, kfuo.org. Look for the uh, sponsor section. There you'll find the CUW logo. Click on that, and that'll take you to the Concordia University, Wisconsin website. And uh, you can find out more about the programs they have to offer, where they're located, not just in Wisconsin, and all the great things that Concordia University, Wisconsin is doing. Our guest today joining us by phone is Allison Kieslowski. She's a teacher, a reading specialist, and contributor for thefederalist.com. Good morning, Allison. Good morning. Thanks so much for taking some time to talk with us today about these important topics when it comes to uh, the matter of nurturing children with theological language. Thanks for being our guest. Thanks for having me. Now, recently you uh, you contributed a, a, an article, a post for thefederalist.com, titled How to Nurture Children with Theological Language. And... Uh, Theological language and children you don't always find in the same sentence, much less a title of a, an article. And uh, it had to, uh, I had to dig, that certainly caught my attention, had to dig a little bit deeper. Uh, tell us about your background as a, as a teacher reading specialist. Uh, tell us about your work as a reading specialist. What does a reading specialist do? Um, a reading specialist is someone who focuses on reading um, from birth all the way through adults. And our emphasis is Um, trying to encourage people of all ages to be lifelong readers and therefore lifelong learners. And um, so reading specialists are trained to coach um, from birth all the way through adults, people in reading, not only just the skill of reading, but um, the love of reading. And so um, you find reading specialists in schools, you find them working with pediatricians, you find them coaching other teachers. Um, you find them working with people as adults who are just learning to read themselves or need to go back and practice. So you'll find them all over um, doing things but teaching the skill of reading and teaching the love of reading. So reading, you, you deal with, I'm sure, in reading, it covers all kinds of different topics. Uh, today we're talking about theological language. And uh, so as a reading specialist, I'm sure you deal with, obviously, language, language arts, um, but theological language. What role does theological language play in your life? Well, it's interesting. I, when I stop and think about it, I, I speak thousands and thousands of words to my own children and to other children in my work. When you stop and think about it, how much of that is about the faith specifically it's a very interesting question. I find that I quote Luther and the small catechism frequently to my children, my own children, when I am explaining something, when I'm working through an issue of discipline or correction. I find that I rely heavily on the words of other people. And that was kind of the fascinating thing that was going in my head when I was writing this article, is how much I rely upon the small catechism quoting the commandments quoting what he, how Luther explained the commandments and relying on him to give me the language to explain things to my children in a very logical, systematic way. And I've just grown to really appreciate how Dr. Luther 
wrote the small catechism and the explanations and how it is so useful to talk to children when you don't really have the words to say yourself. So it's that's really what I rely on. I rely on it to explain things to them, to correct them, and I use the language that's been given to me so that I'm not making things up. Um, I'm kind of staying within the guidelines that have been given to me. Let's back up a little bit. Sure. Tell us about your religious instruction, your uh, nurture as as a child and, and, and as an adult. Sure. I, w- growing up, I have the benefit of I was raised in a Christian home where my parents spoke very regularly about the Christian faith. We read the Bible every single morning before we went to school. Um, any Every conversation we have as a family includes um, quoting of scripture and um, talking about things. And so I was very blessed to be raised in a family that is ve- was very much engrossed in the words of scripture. But what I found as I grew up was that there lacked a system of organizing it into um, a way that was manageable to think about. And so even though I was always hearing Scripture and I was always hearing about the Bible, we were always talking about it, it was always part of our family, it, um, I found that I longed for a system to have it make, be organized and make a little bit more sense. And so when we started going to a Lutheran church, I found that. I found the, the understanding of what I had learned as a child. So I did, I did, I memorized hundreds and hundreds of verses. We talked about it all the time, and yet it still wasn't very organized in my head. I just didn't really understand what I had been talking about. So when we, when I found the small catechism, that's where my love of the small catechism came from, was how organized it is and how much it makes sense to me. And and this is where I think the the reading specialist uh, comes into play. In your article on uh, thefederalist.com, How to Nurture Children with Theological Language, you reference a uh, some research from Stanford from last fall, uh, a, a study of 18-month-old children and their families uh, in, in both low and high socioeconomic status. Mm-hmm. Tell us about that research. This is an interesting study because until the study was done, researchers would study the children of their colleagues. So you had a very um, narrow study. In this study, they actually had a mobile unit that went out into the communities and found a very wide variety of family lifestyles, um, family economic backgrounds, um, languages that were spoken, they found a really extensive variety. So this study is unique in the sense that it wasn't just the colleagues of the researchers or, you know, children raised in a university setting. And um, so they, what they did is they put little devices on 18-month-olds to see how much language they were actually hearing during the day. Fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating of the huge range of language that these children are hearing. Some were hearing very little language during the day, and those tended to be, not exclusively, but tended to be in lower socioeconomic families. And then in other families, they heard thousands of words. Um, And so they were trying to see how this affected children's understanding 
of language as they got older. And what they found was children who do not hear language and a variety of language. I was talking to a temple professor, and he said um, families in lower socioeconomic um, status, sometimes 90% of the words they hear are um, punitive. So stop that, don't do that, Mm -hmm. Um, you 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 have to do something else. But it's repeated over and over again. They don't hear a variety of language when they do hear language. And those children struggle with understanding what people are saying, and they also struggle to read because they haven't heard a lot of the words that they need to know. And then families that use very wide vocabularies, rich language, those children have fewer struggles because they've heard so many words and such a variety of words um, that they are able to process language a lot better. So this is, it's not just about reading, this is about all types of communication that involve language. It is. Um, I quoted one example that they used. If a child has never heard the word ball mm-hmm. or any other noun, you know, the name of an object, and you ask that child just verbally to do something with an object, they're processing what object are they talking about, I don't understand. They're taking all this time to process because they've never heard that word. So this, is, this affects verbal requests, commandments, Um, questions that people might ask well before they even start learning the alphabet and reading. They're actually not processing what people are even saying to them. So this, you know, it's a very important thing, and they just found such a wide variety of what children are hearing. Um, they, They really needed to encourage families to talk to their children more. Um, in, in about everything, they just don't hear enough words in some families. Now, you mentioned in the as part of the research, they attached digital recorders to these children so yes. they could track all the, the the children heard the the language that the children heard throughout the day. I can't imagine being one of the people who had to uh, who had to go through all that audio. <laughs> I know I, they they had hundreds of hundreds, maybe thousands of hours for each child that they had to go through and I'm the device itself didn't just simply record what was going on it actually was able to decipher whether or not it was a person speaking to the child and it it actually had a ticker that ticked off how many words oh wow so it did it did help them Mm -hmm. go through it a little bit but it somehow did not count if a tv in the background was playing it did not count that as language. Children do not process that background noise. So if a TV's on all during the day, even if it's educational TV, quote-unquote educational TV, um, and it's just on in the background, children are not processing that language. This is language that is directly spoken to them by another person. And so they did differentiate that, too. It does not count if it's the radio playing in the car. And it doesn't count if it's the television in the background. It would only be if it was a person speaking it to that child. And somehow the counters helped them decipher what, what was being, being spoken to the child. That's interesting. The, mm-hmm. So it didn't count radio or TV or anything, any audio playing in the background, any media playing in the background. Uh, it was only when a person was speaking directly to the child, addressing yeah. the child. That's very interesting. They did not, because... 
when a TV is just playing in the background, the children really aren't processing that in the same way because it's not connecting it to what's around them mm-hmm. as directly. So if we say to a child, here's your milk in a cup, mm-hmm. and then hand it to them, they are associating milk in a cup, that phrase, with the object that's being handed to them. And that's how they figure out what milk is and what cup is. And then also all the prepositions and all of that. We are going to put this in the container. Let us take this out of the container. That is all done by association with the person there. If we're not talking about what we're doing during the day, they are slowly, they're more slowly learning even the prepositions. Um, and so sometimes in early childhood reading, we have to work on prepositions. What do these words in, out, above, behind all of these words mean because they've never encountered it mm-hmm. before. Wow, that's fascinating. You know, things that we just take for granted on a daily basis. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm in a, a field of communications on a regular basis, so uh, things that I, I hadn't thought about uh, before. One when of it, the researchers mm-hmm. said, it's, the good news is, I mean, to paraphrase what she said, the good news is you don't have to have money to do this. Mm-hmm. Even though it tends to be fewer words spoken in a lower socioeconomic status, you know, in a family that struggles financially, that doesn't mean if you strug- if a family struggles financially, they cannot speak to their children. This is a no-cost, <laughs> mm-hmm. a no-cost solution to some communication problem. Okay, so we're talking about communication in general uh, mm-hmm. with children. Theologically, what does this mean? Your, your article is specifically about nurturing children with theological language. Where does theological language come into this picture? Well, I, I listed four things in the article I, that concern me. I think um, some American families just are not inclined to speak about theology with their children. Um, for some reason, they do not either care to talk about it with them, or they aren't interested in it. I personally think a lack of interest is a significant problem, even in our churches. We don't talk about it because we're not really interested in it. Um, And so the kids don't hear it at all. They don't know. It's not just that they don't know who a historical Jesus is. It's that they don't know any, there's no framework at all to work from. And then there's the opposite extreme, which is they throw everything at them as if it's equally valid. Um, So... Like every you know, religion under the sun. Yes. Every religion, every philosophy, every holiday we encounter, we treat them all equally. And you see this, I see this in school systems, where to teach respect for people, we inadvertently have said they're all the same. And treating someone else with respect and listening to what they have to say is very different than saying, I have to accept everything you say mm-hmm. as truth. Um, and but we've we've kind of gone the other extreme where we have to everything's dumped in together, um, and then one that I just think, I, um, I think we see this on the in the media perhaps, but it's just I'm going to shout louder than other people, and so we kind of teach our children that being right is more important than lovingly speaking the truth. Um, we're going to shout that we are right um, rather than saying. In love, you need to know that this is true. Um, and that I dubbed that the temper tantrum appro- approach <laughs> just because we're talking about children. Um, but just that I'm going to demand that I'm right. 
And then the sugar water approach I mentioned was just that we try and make it easy for kids to understand it. And when we do it, we dilute it to a point where it doesn't mean anything anymore. And sugar water is just, we make it sweet and easy to drink. But if it doesn't mean anything, it doesn't matter. Um, it's just it's just sugar. There's no nutritional value to it. So my, in some ways, the article was to call us to say we need to use the rich, nutritious language of, and I specifically mentioned um, Martin Luther's small catechism, but hymns, words of the faith that are rich, the vocabulary is rich, the language is rich, the sentences are rich, but also the teaching is rich. And, you know, my children don't understand it the first time I say it. Mm -hmm. But it rolls around in their head, it becomes part of how you talk about it, and when, you, when someone asks you, what do you believe, I would love it if the creed rolls off their tongue. We don't have to make up what we believe. We've been given a creed. Um, it can just roll off the tongue. This is what I believe. And then we can break it down into smaller pieces to understand it, to understand what those words mean. Um, and so just really emphasizing that it's not just communication in general, but it's the language of our faith. Let's use the rich, deep, deeply meaningful language of our faith, and let's give that to our children as a gift, and they will be able to process things so much better if we do this. So you're talking about that you were comparing it to food, and food analogies yeah. always work really well for me. So we're talking about the meat and the vegetables here. Yes. We're not the nutritious. That's where the nutrition is. Now, granted, there are things like dessert, um, but uh, but that's not necessarily where the nutrition is. You're talking about where uh, the the uh, the meat and the vegetables are, where the nutrition is, where uh, you find things that are going to sustain you. Yes. And I actually talk about church in food language with the children, especially with the sacrament that you eat. We are given the body and blood of Christ. But just that we are being fed. And if we, if church is only about candy, you know, metaphorically speaking, and sometimes actually, actually given candy in church, if that's all it's about, then we are not being fed. And we nurture our souls with the Word of God and with His gifts in baptism and the sacraments. This is where He feeds us. And I, I do, I talk about, I talk about eating all the time. I, you know, say, we, we cannot go through a day. We have a hard time fasting. We have a hard time skipping a meal. <laughs> we, can't, we can't even go through a day. How can we say we can go through any length of time without hearing God's Word and receiving His gifts and say we're being nurtured and given the nutritious food of our faith? And, yeah, I do. I use food a lot. <laughs> I think it resonates with a lot of people. If in our culture, often we we might think that children just can't understand the heavy theological language. It's it's too complex, so we avoid using what we might call churchy terms, you know, ecclesiastical terms. Um, it, it might be well intending, uh, thinking, okay, well, we'll just wait till they're older and we'll use the the bigger language then. Is there something that's lost when we do that? I think there's something lost, and I think there's a danger when we say that that we never get to the rich language. When's the magical age mm -hmm. when we would start using it? And that's 
my, always my concern is when do we magically say children are ready for this? Um, I think we push it off and push it off and push it off, and then they get distracted by the world, and they're off doing their thing, and we're trying to bring them back, saying, look at how rich this is. And I don't think, you know, we would never say to our children, I'm going to let you eat candy, to go back to the food metaphor, no, I'm going to let you eat candy till you are a certain age, and then I will give you the, you know, the sustaining food mm-hmm. here. We would never say that. I wholeheartedly admit that my three-year-old does not have the deepest understanding of the faith, but I do want her to have the words to think about it. As she asks questions, I respond back with the, the richest language I can, the richest language of Scripture. And it's like we read books that she can't understand, she sits and listens to us read chapter books. She's not understanding it all, and what she, when she retells it, it's a little off. But she has gotten so much um, in language and sentence structure and just the joy of reading and sitting with us. We should do that with theology. So this isn't an article saying your three-year-old or any given three-year-old should understand every single thing you say and be able to explain it back to you. And I think maybe that's the danger. Maybe we say we should only use language that they would use saying it back to us. But we're saying you need to give them language beyond what they can say. 18 months old, you know, with a study at Stanford, they're not speaking very much. They're saying you need to use language well beyond the children to give them as much to use as possible, and it's to help them think and to process and everything. So I, I say even with, you know, children from birth, we should use the richest language to give them all of that to, to think about and to grow into. And that's, that was my other concern is if we give them a faith to grow out of, they grow up out of the faith, they, lose the, they leave the faith. If we grow, give them faith to grow into, then they can mature and grow into it and have a deeper understanding of it and process what's going on around them. Sure, if we give them the things of the faith that, yes. that, they, can grow, uh, that, that they can grow into rather than out of, then yes. it's, it's going to be with them a lot longer. Earlier you mentioned that uh, you want for your children when, when, when asked... Uh, what do you believe? You want them to be able to, you, you hope that, that, that a creed would just come to mind, that that would just roll right off their tongues. And, well, I, I think, you know, um, many Christian churches in the United States have rejected the idea of creeds um, for various reasons. And I think it's a shame because when someone asks me what I believe, as a, just a general statement, what do you say? I believe a lot of things. (laughs) I mean, where do you start? So the creed is a starting place. And saying, well, I believe in God the Father, I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, and I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church. These are all things I believe in. Let's talk about all these things. It's just a a starting place for conversation, and it's most importantly, it's a starting place as a thought. When someone says, well, what do you believe? Mm Mm-hmm. 
your it organizes your thoughts and organizes how you would respond i think for for many uh in in american christianity that you know what do you believe in and, and, and the avoidance of creeds and and statements uh, doctrinal statements things like that or even the word doctrine uh, is because it appears so uh, to to many it appears insincere and that uh from their perspective uh christianity faith um is is must be uh something that's heartfelt and and they don't see i think that that a creed uh, can be something that, while we say it externally, is something that's also believed internally, but it's not dependent on um, how we feel about it. I think it's dangerous, actually, to say we have to rely on how we feel about things, because you, if you don't get enough sleep at night, you're going to feel differently mm-hmm. about it than if you do get sleep. I mean, feelings are very subjective to a lot of things. Our health and well-being affects our emotions. I think... I've had this criticism many times that liturgy or creeds or anything, that they are emotionless, that they're rote. Um, And it's possible. It is entirely possible. But I've actually never been to a church that doesn't have a certain way they do it. And they've just developed their own way of doing it, and they do it the same way each week. Mm -hmm. It's just not necessarily a historic way of doing it. So I, I don't think there's any church, if they were genuinely honest, that doesn't have their set pattern in doing it. And to say that one way, a spontaneous prayer or a spontaneous answer is somehow more heartfelt than something else, I think is, I think is just erroneous. Um, there's a danger that people do things for you know, reasons that aren't heartfelt, they can do anything with that. I mean, they can... I cook meals sometimes in a very unemotional and not very interested way, but that doesn't mean it's less valuable. Mm -hmm. That meal isn't um, less nutritious because I didn't care if I made it or not. Um, It's still necessary. It's still nutritious. And my family needs to eat each night, even if I don't feel like doing it. So I, I, I think there's part where we somehow assign that to church where we wouldn't say that was true in life. Um, but I don't, think, I don't think creeds have to be emotionless. I don't think they have mm-hmm. to be passionless. I, some Sundays tear up during the creed. I just i am so gr- grateful for it. So it doesn't have to be that way. Absolutely. So how can we improve religious instruction, theological? Uh, how, how can we improve nurture of our children when it comes to uh, matters of faith? I think the first way is I think the adults have to feel the gratitude, genuine gratitude for the salvation we have in Christ and for the gifts that he gives us. I think if we genuinely appreciate it ourselves, it will come out. Um, when we talk to the children. Secondarily, I think that we need to take the tools that have been given to us and use them and realize we don't have to make this up. We don't have to... uh, Many parents feel very unprepared for the questions their children pose to them. Um, They're very daunting. 
some of the questions kids have. We don't have to answer them ourselves. We're not making up the answers ourselves. We don't have to be geniuses. We've been given these creeds. We've been given these hymns. I, I quote hymns all the time. Um, and we've been given the small catechism to help us in this. Um, Dr. Luther said this is for fathers to teach to their children, to their families, as the head of the household. Um, it's been given as a gift to the families. Absolutely. Well, we are talking with Allison Kieselowski. She is a teacher, reading specialist, and contributor for the Federalist.com. We're talking about how to nurture children with theological language. We want to talk uh, more with Allison when we come back from the break, and we're going to talk about uh, your family's reading this summer, how to revitalize it. So stick around for more Faith and Family right after this on Worldwide KFUO, the messenger of good news. Concordia University, Mequon, Wisconsin, overlooks the beautiful shoreline of Lake Michigan. This serene main campus of CUW is just 15 miles north of Milwaukee with all its vibrant cultural attractions. At Concordia University, Wisconsin, students living by the motto of inspiration in action can choose from 69 undergraduate majors, 14 master degree programs, and doctorates in pharmacy, physical therapy, and nursing practice. For more information or to take a virtual tour, visit cuw.edu. KFUO, the messenger of good news for the 21st century. This is Life Issues with Brad Mattis, Executive Director of Life Issues Institute. If I had a dollar for every time a pro-abortion activist said legal abortion is safe abortion, I'd be able to buy a big ranch back in my home state of Montana. Here's a recent snapshot of the legal abortion industry. An Indiana abortionist will stand trial for failing to report suspected child abuse when he aborted a 13-year-old girl. A Georgia abortionist pled guilty to a charge of criminal abortion and sentenced to 10 years. An Alabama abortionist had to go to part-time because he was sentenced to spend 23 weekends in jail on a domestic relations charge. I could list more if time permitted. Each of these guys has a rap sheet as long as my arm, many involving health and safety violations. Legal abortion is not safe abortion. Life Issues. Stay informed. More informed than you've ever been. Facebook is one of the biggest social media instruments for checking out what is going on with Worldwide KFUO. On our Facebook page, facebook.com slash KFUO radio, you'll see us posting pictures, online videos, show information, as well as reviews and previews of events at KFUO. Worldwide KFUO, we are where you are, on Facebook at facebook.com slash KFUO radio. The worldwide leader of confessional Lutheranism, Worldwide KFUO, the messenger of good news. Welcome back to Faith and Family. I'm your host, Andy Bates. Today we're talking with Allison, Allison Kieslowski. She's a teacher, a reading specialist, and contributor for thefederalist.com. We've been talking about how to nurture children with theological language. And uh, Allison, I appreciate the perspective that you've you've presided or presented, and that is the uh, especially the the whole food analogy with um, you know the the richness of meat and vegetables, and 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 comparing that to theological language and using that with children. I, I particularly appreciate how you pointed out that uh, when we're talking with with children, uh, talking face to face, they learn 
pronouns and things like that, like in the box and on the table or in the cup. Uh, they learn those things through direct conversations. And uh, before we get on to our next uh, conversation, next topic, was there anything else that you wanted to share with us about nurturing children in theological language or with theological language? Um, I just thought I would add that um, sometimes parents are intimidated mm-hmm. um, as to wh- what to even do with young children who aren't even speaking. And I say just sing hymns to them. Um, you know, say the creed with them. Um, when you say the creed in church or when you sing the Kyrie or what, whatever's happening in church, point out to them, this is what we're doing, talk to them. And don't try, you don't have to make it up. So just whatever, whatever's there available to you, I just can't emphasize it enough, to use that, it's a gift. It really is a gift. And just to encourage parents that, you know, it can be a little intimidating um, especially if you haven't necessarily been raised in a Christian family or in a Lutheran family. But that's why we have these very special gifts that have been given to us, and we can, we can use those to do it for us. Absolutely. Well, as we were talking about that, that direct communication, that direct interaction, um, even though we may have distractions going on around us, uh, that direct communication with children is really where uh, the the biggest difference is made. And uh, another topic that you've addressed is revitalizing your family's reading this summer. Uh, and I want to talk about that, uh, reading with children. How important is it to read with young children, and in, in, in what age? Since I wrote this article, the American Academy of Pediatrics has actually reissued their guidelines that says to read to children from birth. Don't wait until they're a certain age. Don't wait until they can hold a book. Don't wait until they can show interest in a book. Read to them from mm-hmm. birth and sing to them. I would, I would add that. That wasn't in the study. <laughs> I add that. Um, because it's so vitally important. We're actually realizing more and more and more how important this is, that they understand what books are, that they hear the language. And I, I don't think... Doctors, reading specialists, um, social workers can really emphasize enough how important reading and talking and singing with children is. What, what does it impact? What, is it, uh, what does reading with children do for them? What does it help them with in terms of, I, I guess, development? Well, reading actually provides a different sentence structure and different vocabulary than we use in normal language. When we are just talking to children, the words we use and the sentences we use are different Mm -hmm. than those in books. And so it actually opens up, not just in content, where they can travel to a zoo before they go to a zoo, or they can travel to another part of the world in a book by reading it, they're exposed to this, but also just in the the vocabulary language sentence structure, it's different. So by reading books, singing songs, and then just talking to children, we are broadening all the language experience they have. I appreciate that you include singing songs in addition to reading books. The way that we use language in books and the way that we use language in songs, you're right, is different than 
our day-to-day conversation. Um, if, especially if we're talking about children's books, I, I don't necessarily speak in the same way that Dr. Seuss writes. No, and not only is he zany and fun, I mean, he's timeless, but the rhyming, too, children naturally love nonsense rhymes, Mm -hmm. but that's not something adults would necessarily do. I don't have Um, the talent to do that. (laughs) Some adults really have a talent to do that, And, and some adults have the amazing ability, even though we moan and groan when they do it, to do have puns, to think of puns, and so play on words and puns and... Poetry, that may come naturally to some people, but other people, that's not how they normally speak. And so, it, you know, songs and books open up that. But also, we don't, even in sentences that don't rhyme or songs, we don't put clauses in the same order. Mm-hmm. It, it is a completely different way of speaking, and it, it gives them a different framework for even arranging the words in a different order. And poetry very noticeably does that. But even prose books, where it's just a straight story, there's no rhyme, there's no rhythm, it gives a different structure. The words are put in a different order. So it just just broadens and opens up the whole world of language um, to a wider experience. I think with reading, and and also with singing, especially with singing, we... We we approach perhaps the 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 words. Uh, we take more time with the words than we would if we were just speaking, um, especially with singing. Uh, that's one of the things about uh, singing or chanting the psalms. Is you can't rush through it. Then you take time to uh, to enjoy each word, if you will. And that was something when you're working with someone who's never read a book to a child one of the first things you say is not only how to hold the book so they can see it and can turn pages, but we read more slowly than we speak. And um, taking pauses, taking time to think about the words, and singing does that naturally. I agree with you completely about chanting. Um, Some people really are turned off by chanting or by singing a psalm because it does take more time. But Mm -hmm. it I, I would argue that it does help you process. Sure. And I, I think probably some are turned off because it's unfamiliar. It's not something yeah. that's common or popular in our, our culture. But but you're right. It takes it takes more time, and therefore we, we give more thought to it. Mm-hmm. And time is something I think is an issue with just reading in general. It doesn't come at you prepackaged in the same way, and you have to go through and process it at a slower pace. And children reading a book on the lap of a caregiver, a parent, a grandparent, babysitter, whoever's reading to them, the pace of turning the pages, the pictures go slower too. Mm-hmm. When you, you're looking at a picture for a while, listening to all the words, and then you turn the page. Think of how they make children's programming on TV. It's just shooting at them. As quickly as possible, the picture is always changing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's always a new angle, and even if the characters don't change a lot, they have to be at a different angle. They're looking at them from the from the side. They're looking at them, and everything's always changing. And I don't think the kids can really sit and appreciate what they're seeing, like they can in a picture. In a in a picture book, they point to a picture, they ask a question as they're pointing. 
they're processing the picture. I, I think a book is much more a normal pace of looking at a picture and processing what you're seeing. So I think, I think there's that added benefit to reading books where it also gives them time to process the pictures as well as the mm-hmm. language. I would think I'm, I'm not a, uh, I, I don't do brain research. Uh, I'm not a scientist, but I would think that those two different approaches that you were describing, the, the, the rapid fire of, of video um, or children's television uh, and the programming, how it's prepared, how it's edited, um, compared to sitting on a lap reading a book together, those two different approaches shape our our development, our brain, our I don't know how we're wired in a sense. Does that make sense? It I I do. I think it does. I've I've read um an article it's um a professor at Grove City College um has written an article. He actually teaches a class called The Ecology of Media. Mm-hmm. And in it he talks about how media electronics specifically, have changed how we process things, how we interact with people, and he teaches a course and has written articles on it. So I think, I think there is research that actually says exactly what you just said, is we process it differently. And in the article I mentioned, children naturally read, will reach for a book with Thomas, the, tra- you know, the ancient mm-hmm. engine, or you know, one of the Disney princesses, because they've watched it, they reach for it, and I think it's severely disappointing when you've watched something as, mo- you know, all constantly moving as a video to then try and read a book about it. I mean, I think that would be extremely disappointing because it's boring. <laughs> and so they, they're not trained to sit and slowly go through the words and slowly look at the pictures and really appreciate what's being read and what the illustrations show. And so then you do get to a book that is beyond amazing as far as illustrations and words go, just amazing. And if they're not trained to sit and think about what they're hearing and seeing, they won't even be interested in it. It could be the most amazing Mm -hmm. book in the world. And I do think it's contributing to the inability to process on what's on the page. Sure. If your brain is not developed, if I'm trying, you know, if we picture the brain as kind of plastic, and 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 how that how we learn affects the the shape of it, uh, you know, if we're we're learning to read, sitting on the lap of of uh, you know a caregiver, uh, and and reading the book with them, or, or following along, or, or just listening, uh, and and seeing what's going on there, that wires our brain one way. Watching a video wires our brain a different way, and it creates these channels, these paths in our brains. And so then we, if we try to read, you know, if we, if most of what, you know, if we go back to the the uh, the food analogy, if uh, most of the diet we've had is is primarily uh, sweets and, and candy and stuff like that, but then we try to actually enjoy fruits and vegetables, it takes a while to to get used to that diet. If we try to change the diet. Well, a neurologist, I, I wish um, I had written down the last name. I had just been recommended a book by somebody, um, by a friend, and it's a neurologist who actually has studied the plasticity of the brain, mm-hmm. the exact word you just used, of adults, and what happens um, as we 
begin to rely upon technology, the, our, the neurological functions and the plasticity changes of the brain. And um, I believe the last name is Carr, C-A-R-R, but I could be wrong on that. Um, I'd have to look it up. But anyway, yeah, he's, that's exactly what he studied, but it's specifically in adults. Some of it is just habit. Mm-hmm. We, we try and train our children. We wash our hands and we say please and thank you. These are habits that we need to get into. They are um, etiquette. They're also hygiene. And we also have to have good reading habits. Um, it's, part of it is just simply habit and um, making it part of the daily life. But I agree with you. I think the way we process things is absolutely affected by how we, how we take in the information. How, and how we begin, you know, mm-hmm. with the foundation that's built, the, the, uh, how we're, it, what we do as a, as a young child, how we learn to take in information kind of sets those, those, uh, those paths for how we will do it in the future as well, kind of mm-hmm. wires us differently. But, you know, um, one of the studies um, that I quoted in the article said that still 87% of children, fourth grade and younger, prefer a regular, traditional book over reading on an electronic device. Really? They do. Mm-hmm. And they, the number came out to be 87%. I, don't, I think it changes as they get older, um, the preference changes, mm-hmm. but early readers, children that are just beginning to read, and I've tried to read children's books on my Kindle to my kids, and it's, very, it's hard to read. You can't see the pictures. The pictures aren't as vivid. They're not as bright. They still, 87% still appreciate a hard, you know, a book that they can handle. They can turn the pages themselves and look at the pictures. Mm -hmm. So that hasn't changed. That's still a really high number. How do you, go ahead. Some of it is just the love and affection of sitting with someone you you care about. Um, When my daughter says, can you read me a book? Some of it is she just wants to snuggle. (laughs) And, um... You know, we need to stop and take time to do that, too. They need the love and affection that goes along with it. And um, I think that's sometimes what happens in families. We're so busy, we're doing a million things, that we forget that even older kids like to sit with their families and listen to a book. I, I listen to books. We would take turns reading it as a family well into high school. I always We always sat and read. We would read funny books, mm-hmm. um, but we'd read to each other. We'd sit out during a thunderstorm on the porch, <laughs> and someone would be reading a book. And so that's junior high and high school. We forget that even older kids love this. And, um, you know, part of summer reading can just be picking a book to read together, mm-hmm. a nice, fun book, read it out loud, and just sit as a family and do this. Sure. Love it. H- how um, do you... I, you know, I mean, we can, you can do other things, too, but to take time each day to just read together, it's fun. It's a lot of fun. How do American parents rate when it comes to reading with their children? Where, what does it look like for us today? What's the, the landscape look like in terms of reading with children? Um, well, it comes in, as far as a summer activity, reading likes far behind playing outside, we found. <laughs> um, they, that parents, when they're polled, when summer comes, 
they're not thinking reading. So this was specifically a poll done about summers. What do you want your children to do in the summer? And it was, by and large, way beyond anything else to play outside. And that's great. I, I actually believe wholeheartedly in fresh air. Mm-hmm. And I, <laughs> I think it is medicine for the soul. So I'm not disparaging that, but, it, but reading lagged far behind that. And then, you know, kids are just not reading during the summer. And it's, you know, it's, I think parents aren't as interested in it. I, you know, this goes back to something we talked about with the theological language. It's a lack of interest. Um, parents aren't reading, and so they don't really encourage it in their children. They want to be outside. They want to be doing these things, which might be, all be commendable things to do, but reading always lacks behind. What can we do to revitalize our reading as a family? I think the first thing, and I, re- <clears throat> I said this even talking about theological language, is to rekindle a love for reading and stories and the fun of it. That stories told in movies are fun, but there is a very different fun and enjoyable experience of reading together out loud or just sitting on the couch together, mm-hmm. reading books separately but near each other. There's to rediscover that. So in the article I said, you know, this is a problem because I don't think adults are reading um, maybe as much as they used to be in the past. But if they see us, and actually the Annie E. Casey Foundation's report said, and there was another report from Common Sense Media, they both said families reading together, parents modeling reading. Um, This is you know, um, the American Pediatrics of um, American Academy of Pediatrics, families reading with their babies, even from birth. So there's a family component to this where it's, it's on the parents in some aspects to show that this is important. And if, but not just important as a drudgery, because there was a, something else I read where parents asked, why do your children read? And some of them was fear of punishment, that the parents said, you have to read for this amount of time or mm-hmm. you will lose a privilege. That may be necessary for the practice of reading, I, I suppose. I think it would be better if it was, this is something enjoyable we always do. So um, just rediscovering the fun of it. And maybe finding stuff. I, my family and I, we love funny books. (laughs) Our goal is to at least once a week read something that makes us laugh out loud. We just, we love it. We find them all the time. So find something that really is enjoyable to everybody and reading it together. With just a a couple minutes left, about uh, two minutes left, what's on your summer reading list and why? Well, my children and I had this fun experience where we had, um, a friend visit from Japan. So we said, okay, we're going to take this opportunity to learn about Japan. And we found an author. It's Alan Say, S-A-Y. And he is Japanese-American, and he, he writes these stories about the experience of the two cultures kind of clashing and how he's dealt with it. They're wonderful. They're not hilarious. They're not the funny ones that we were reading, but... It's a, it's a great series. He has a whole bunch of them. If anybody's interested in 
kind of learning about that Japanese-American experience. I highly recommend it. The girls and I enjoyed it. Um, we also always, I believe firmly in rereading things. Mm-hmm. So that would be our new thing, as Alan say, and going through some of those with historical element to them. And then we were going to probably reread C.S. Lewis, The Silver Chair. My girls loved that. We already read it once, and they just were breathless, absolutely breathless as I read it. My one daughter had to hide in the closet. She was so nervous when the green lady, the lady in the green dress was, oh, she was so nervous, and she was hiding, and then she jumped out when the marsh wiggle won, and oh, it was great. So we'll probably reread that. And then I myself and some friends... um, we're planning to read Call the Midwife, which has been made into a BBC series. Mm-hmm. It's a memoir of a woman who tried to help the conditions of midwives and help deliveries become more safe. And so I, a friend recommended it, and I'll probably try and read that. Um, kind of a memoir and made into this BBC show. So um, a lot of people have recommended that. So those are probably three on the top of our list at this point. Outstanding. And uh, where will you be reading? Reading at home on the couch, out by the pool, uh, out out, out uh, camping? Where's your favorite place to read? Well, our favorite place to read is on our back porch in the swing. We have a long swing where we can all sit. Um, they enjoy reading on um, our bed. <laughs> <laughs> they just think it's so comfy. Um, we read pretty much anywhere we are. We read on the couch, we read on the swing, we take a blanket out and put it on the ground, we read um, when we're at the lake swimming, we'll stop and read a book, Um, we listen to books on CD um, as we're going places, so you can pretty much tuck it in the bag and, and read it anywhere you are. I will say, if it's a really exciting book, be prepared. They might not want to stop. So <laughs> I, if we start the silver chair, I have to plan that nothing is happening afterwards for about two hours because we will just be reading. You can't stop now, mommy. We got to know, who's, you know, what's happening with the green snake. So I will warn you on that. Don't, don't plan anything if it's a real exciting one. We've been talking with Allison Kieslowski. She's a teacher, reading specialist, and contributor for thefederalist.com. Allison, thanks so much for being our guest on Faith and Family today. It was so much fun. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Stick around. We've got more great programming, including the Bible study coming up next right here on Listener Supported Worldwide, KFUO, the messenger of good news. Listen to Faith and Family Monday through Friday at this time. Faith and Family is a listener supported program. Your financial support is needed for Faith and Family to continue. Our address is 1333 South Kirkwood Road, St. Louis, Missouri, 63122. You can contact us on the web and download Faith and Family at KFUO.org. Worldwide KFUO, on the air, online, and on demand.